0: This is Kamukunji, a podcast series by Errant Praxis. Welcome to Kamukunji. My guest today is Tuliza Cindy, who is lecturer of architecture at the University of Johannesburg's Graduate School of Architecture and is founder and CEO of the South African-based experimental firm Brainwash. Her firm explores the social political construct of service as a concept on which coloniality is both built upon and functions from. With service as both verb and noun being a condition that has and continues to function as a tool of permission, participation, legitimization, influence, dehumanization, exceptionalism, nobility, and absolution. To Liz and I have been engaging in profound discussions about our complex positions and positionings, positions in power and against power structures as black, brown women. The identity politics of navigating and the oftentimes violent spaces reserved to us in the profession of architecture. To Lisa, I admire you profoundly. I know your work, but I always have some difficulty expressing uh, what it is that you do in all its depth and breadth. So i will like to hear from you and I'd like to share with our listeners a bit about Brainwash and everything else that you've been doing.
1: Um, thanks so much, Patty, for the invitation, first of all, and thanks for the platform as well. Um, and as the conversation shifted from, you know, friendly conversation to interview, my heart started racing, <laughs> which often isn't what happens when I speak with you. And so I think it's just a reflection on how energies shift when, um, you know, diff- different platforms are experimented with. So I find that already very interesting. I think it's also an important facet of this conversation, the way that we are changed Um Or the way that we shift in order to accommodate the platforms that we're on. Um, But just a bit of background around my work. So my interest is around service, the idea or the power construct of service um, and how it has a way of hiding itself in plain sight in our society, in our societal ideologies. When we look at the idea, for instance, of servant of God, right, a a person who's who's meant to serve the community of God, but then holds the most power. When we look at government as a means to service people, but they hold the most power, service has a very sinister way of hiding itself as a noble presence in society, whilst it holds some of the most significant power. And my kind of rooted inquiry or pointed inquiry is around domestic workers in South Africa. In the context of South Africa, it's a very interesting socio-political construct disguised as an industrial construct. Domestic workers make some of the most disempowered members of our society, but they hold greatest proximity to power, and also their ability to be invisible because, you know, they, they become forgotten members of society. They're kind of the tools, right? And we don't necessarily remember the names of tools. And in our society, that's very prevalent. They're able to ha- to listen to the most private of conversations, see the most private of things, and understand us to the depth that no- none of us who don't have that degree of exposure are able to really see and experience and understand society. And my interest in that is really in the social production that happens in the personal home, which often manifests itself at larger scales in society, that we start to manifest those social productions in our nuclear home at larger scales, larger uh, social scales, larger design scales, larger policy scales. My interest with that is also with how incredibly underregulated, the space is. It's very difficult to regulate an environment that is also personal. And yet, you know, it is a very professional role for the domestic worker, but it is a personal environment for the home, which means that they have their own individual sets of regulations. And every home has their own individual sets of regulations, which enables some very sinister forms of, power, power constructs to manifest themselves, to breed, to be nurtured, to be reinforced in those personal spaces, and then they replicate themselves at larger scales in society. And so the interest for the firm is really to understand what the implications of those social productions in very small spaces do to the way that we understand our societies, the way that we contribute to our societies, and the way that we imagine the futures of our societies.
0: I want to pick up on a few things that you said. The first one was the the shifts that happen within us uh, when we speak in different platforms and different spaces. And you're mentioning how when we are in our intimate space of discussion about these very personal and profound issues, one uh, has a a different uh, position, right? Or one feels a different way. And this brings me to a discussion, just a comment, perhaps more than a discussion. How we are invited and we are uh, part of these other spaces of discussion, be it in academia, be it in conferences, be it in, in our own professional settings, and how we have to negotiate these different platforms of discussions that we know are not as permissive spaces or are spaces that bring to us, that reflect on us a lot of very powerful discomforts. And we've been discussing that a bit, how we also shift our own, not that we shift our language, I think most of us that are in this uh, stay true to, to our work or we try to, but how these platforms are inherently full of legacies and full of ways of framing us in very problematic ways and how we are in this constant position of deconstructing and reconstructing and, and dealing with our discomfort that is projected on us and, and, and having a voice and finding a voice of power to speak from. So I think that that's uh, something that I we've been discussing a lot and I would like you to also touch on if you want to and then to speak about this incredible work that you are doing uh, with the service industry and the domestic workers and, and this idea of... Seeing them, you know, because they are part of our society that is uh, made invisible, but that has an incredible amount of power and empowering this or or allowing for this unveiling and empowering them and just giving them visibility, which is quite profound
1: really great question and I think these are questions that I'm constantly reflecting on myself in the work that I do in my lines of questioning and the ways that I teach as well I mean, when I just think about, for instance, stepping into platforms not designed for us, not inherently designed for us, even to the work that I do with domestic workers, the first impression always is it must be charity. There's no way that this can exist in an intellectual environment and hold its own weight, intellectual weight. Or there's no way that it can sit within an economic environment and hold its weight in value. It's always can't relegated to to charity and this it just gets stripped of any potential for using it as a lens through which to see and understand society and ourselves better and so i really see how that reframing is constantly happening and part of, probably most of the work that i've done has been to counter the immediate framing that has happened with all the assumptions that are made about what I must be doing if I'm engaging the domestic worker sector. And not even just from the environments that I engage that are not used to engaging domestic workers, even from domestic workers themselves. They get very shocked when I speak to them <laughs> on value terms or on their potential to contribute to intellectual conversations, you know, because the ways that they've also understood that they are framed is through the lens of charity, through the lens of being the most marginalized, which, you know, is not incorrect, but it is not the full story, right? We talk a lot about the dangers of a single story and really the marginalized tend almost always to be framed around a single story, a singular identity, a singular idea of you know what a collective means. Um, and so that is prevalent constantly. And I mean, I, I think for instance, also to the work of of understanding the relationship and the social production of, of um, relationships between domestic workers and their employers. I imagine, for instance, that a dining room, that a dining room is a dining room to the family, the employer, but it's not necessarily a dining room to the domestic worker who's cleaning that space. And the family doesn't see that dining room as a dining room for the domestic worker either, right? So associations are built differently to that space. And I think that happens a lot in the platforms that we go to, right? That it looks like a platform in which all of us are able to access, all of us are able to freely contribute, but it means one thing to a group of people because it was designed for them to experience it as that, whilst it, ex- it it's designed for, for it to mean something different to us. And so those negotiations are constantly happening, those negotiations that we constantly feel ourselves experiencing as, as people of color, as marginalized groups, because... It inherently wasn't designed for us to see it as the thing that it was, and it wasn't necessarily designed for it to reflect our de- our ideas to uh, the degree that we mean it, and to to the power that it holds as well. I think engaging with the service sector and the way that it exists in our society, uh, what its services and the proximity that it also has to things. And so it can seem to hold power when it holds no power, or it can seem to hold no power when it holds all the power. I think we're constantly establishing those re- relationships and those negotiations everywhere that we go. And with everything we we create with <laughs> the conversations that we have, we're constantly doing those things and not always incredibly aware of it. And I think, Things that serve or service, you know, is both a verb and a noun. I think those things help us to better understand the way those things can happen uh, in ways that we might not always um, immediately understand when we're grappling with things in platforms that we feel we've been invited to, but we feel a lot of tension or push back or feel like we have to self-regulate or feel like we have to posture or curate the way that we are present in those spaces. I think understanding the way that service exists as a social political construct allows us to better understand what we're experiencing. Uh,
0: great, thank you. No, it's very insightful because you are trained as an architect. You are an architect. You teach architecture in the architecture department, and you speak of how you've found the service uh, industry as a platform and as a space. So, if you created a space, I mean, I think that's even more insightful to think of it as you creating a space that are, already exists, or you are revealing a space and unpacking it with all its its power relationships that we are very much aware of and live with uh, as women, as women of color, as women, African women, and in this logic of creating space and unpacking this power structure even in the language of architecture in the language of what we have been taught in a very specific type of way of teaching architecture, in the language of of making spaces with names such as dining room and living room and whatever other rooms, but that are used very differently by different people and that impose in people very different ways of being, right? And they, they fix people in a particular position. So uh, speaking of this like language, I don't know if I made myself clear, but that we are dealing with architecture, language, and also how we can go beyond it because we are uh, also inquiring and questioning our space within society and our own societies and globally also. What does it mean for you to teach uh, students who are learning a language that was created in a particular context and with a particular ideology and yes, while we are all engaged and actively uh, engage in decolonizing the curriculum, we know the curriculum also uh, and the language of architecture itself is laden with uh, a language that is uh, exclusionary, that is one story, uh, that is limiting in the possibilities. So perhaps you could also bridge a little bit into how you bring these... um, incredible insights and research into your teaching, and allowing students to create their own spaces or to have a critical outlook with the very language that they are being taught to use.
1: I think, for one, I have been very interested in framing everything as knowledge. I think what academia has had the habit of doing is nitpicking what deserves to be deemed knowledge and what deserves to sit outside of knowledge. Um, And so for me, I think one of my greatest inquiries has been that, and that knowledge is right in front of you. It is your experience of life. It is what you're manufacturing, you know, between friends. It is the fears that you're afraid to say out loud. It is all of those things, um, and that all of it holds value and uh, all of it is interesting in some way, and contributes to our collective understanding of ourselves, uh, which I think academia must deeply contribute to. So that, I think, has been a very big thing, but I think um, we have we have been tasked with creating or building vocabulary for what we're seeing and experiencing. In our context, in South Africa, for instance, we have had an overt expression of racism, of institutional racism, which was apartheid. And then what we're existing in right now is called post-apartheid South Africa, which is more accurate than post-racial, which is also a term that they use, right? It is definitely a post-apartheid society, but not necessarily a post-racial or racialized society. And so the consequences of the experiment is playing itself out every single day as we coexist in a society that didn't address the reality of what was its, its foundational structures. And so we're really tasked with the job of establishing or building or building on existing vocabularies um, for what we're seeing and experiencing and that's an exciting thing. That should be something academia is excited about. It's not something academia should be threatened by. Um, and yet, in our context, because our institutions of learning were designed for white people and for power, it does feel threatened by it because, in a sense, we have to define it, which, again, is an exciting thing. But, you know, defining it could also. Threaten what it believes it must remain as. So I try to get students into that level of excitement about it, that there is an incredible opportunity for them to contribute to ways of seeing themselves, ways of seeing their society, and ways of seeing the world that we have. Not fully understood yet. And that's an incredible thing to have the potential to contribute to. So I think there is the task for us to really excite the students with the potential that lies in us uncovering ourselves, that it's not something that will threaten You know, the foundations that were actually really terrible anyway, um, but that it it grants us the opportunity to build incredibly profound foundations that are rooted in truth and that are rooted in in possibilities. I think we also have to constantly challenge our students um, around who they believe their audience is. For the most part, um, our audience has been the global West and the global North. And I think we have used their limited vocabulary, and by vocabulary I don't mean that the language itself is limited, but what the language serves is limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's worth it to constantly challenge the students to inquire about who, who whose gaze are they are they uh, responding to, reacting to, pandering to. Who do they? Who who are they trying to have ignore them? Who are they trying to grab? Who, who do they? Whose attention do they want? Whose affection do they want? Right? That we we really allow them to ask that for themselves, and not to villainize anything, and not to judge, um, but just to really allow them to expand their line of questioning, that they don't ask incomplete or lazy questions, but that they ask a broader range of questions, um, and that even stepping into the sinister isn't necessarily subscribing to it. And I think we have to make those distinctions for students. I think it's very, we're we're often very quick to um, villainize lines of questioning or, or lines of inquiries. And I think if any place must allow all of those things, it must be academic institutions. I think also... Unfortunately, a lot of the focus is on students who, if you think about it, are more fluid in institutions than lecturers are. Lecturers are, are more the furniture there, right? They'll, they'll be there for longer than the students will. They will affect more minds than the students will or they will have access to more minds than students will. And they will have access in positions of power, to minds, to malleable minds, the minds of students, than, than the students will. And very seldom do we uh, talk about transformation in institutions through the lens of what is required of lecturers. We talk more about what you know, the curriculum must you know, mean for the students or how I must shape them or whatever it is, but not so much the individual that is the lecturer giving it. Because we can change a curriculum, but if the lecturer doesn't necessarily believe in it, believes that it's something that's just been being force-fed and their own personal inquiry hasn't expanded, hasn't, you know, shifted or, you know, just hasn't made room for it, that is really what the student is experiencing. They're experiencing conflict within the lecturer. So even though they're getting a certain curriculum, they're receiving a lecturer who is in conflict with that curriculum. And so I think we also have to we have to understand that lecturers are as much as a project as any other thing that we're trying to grapple with as a project. And I very seldom hear, hear that being spoken about. And in my experience, my very <laughs> few years of experience, I'm really not speaking as an expert, but in my few years of experience as a lecturer, The most resistance I've ever experienced was from lecturers who were not prepared to leave room for the students to claim something as an intellectual inquiry. And I've also seen incredibly uh, courageous students who have insisted in spite of the resistance that came from lecturers. And that's incredibly beautiful and profound to see, but not every student will have that courage and other students will be weighing out what they have to lose. You know, will they be kicked out of the university? Will this prevent them from having their degree? Will they have to, you know, repeat uh, a year a couple of times and can they afford it? You know, so they're negotiating all of those threats and that is, you know, collectively determining whether they're able to hold courage in that space or not. And so it shouldn't necessarily be up to them to negotiate whether they can have courage to bring something forward as potential knowledge or not. I think we should get the lecturer at that place where they are likely to pose a force of resistance towards new forms of knowledge.
0: You've touched on a a few very interesting things. And I think you are also um, speaking specifically from a particular institution or the experience of a particular institution, uh, if I may say so, and I believe you will agree, which is the GSA, the Graduate School of Architecture at the University of Johannesburg. It is a space that has been defined and created to allow for such inquiries, allow students, especially in the African continent, African students in South Africa, to explore these, this search for a new vocabulary, to imbue their inquiry with their very personal and traumatic experience of living in a society that has this legacy of apartheid and the racial politics of, of the institution itself or institutions themselves. been quite an, an amazing space and a, and a transformative space that quite different than other institutions where the legacies of power are still very much um, operating right i mean it's still in the process of change but they're still very much operating and where a priori there isn't an interest or there is more resistance to change i think that also of course there's this global wave of decolonizing curriculums and decolonizing institutions which cannot be ignored and the very institutions can no longer ignore them but is it can you can you say that yes you have located some resistance on the lecturers or the professors but could it also be that uh, the lecturers are more entangled in the power relationships that are already established in these long standing Institutions. There's so many things that need to happen at so many levels at these spaces. When you when you say and I agree that you you depart from a point where you accept that anything is knowledge, and while the institutions, academia, and especially you know in the global North and global West, as you mentioned, have set themselves apart by excluding systems of knowledge especially system of knowledge from our context as knowledge and these institutions are still the institutions operating in most the uh, geographies including our geographies so yes there are these up and coming spaces and up and coming people who are uh, fighting to transform that but how does one how does one i, I mean we are all trying to Face up to these institutions and these institution legacies that have excluded knowledge systems and experiences and personal experiences as knowledge, especially from our continent so I don't know if it's a comment, if it's a question I mean I think it's a, it's a, a reminder <laughs> just a reminder and how it profound everything that we are dealing with is and how it goes from the very personal from Ourselves, deep, our inner, deeper selves, to our various layers of negotiation uh, with our spaces, you know, professional, academic, intellectual. Uh, I think it's just an acknowledgement. And these are the things that we, uh, you and I, have been addressing really, ourselves, our bodies in these various spaces.
1: If I may respond. Absolutely, please do. Um, I appreciate really um, in our conversations that we have how you always constantly in the process of reflecting. I think you're reflecting on you know, your own presence as a lecturer in these spaces and what you contribute to these tensions, forces, resistances. And it's really beautiful to see. And I think that what you're modeling is something that I think academia hasn't always made space for. I think academia has founded itself on a very unhealthily self-conscious practice where often we're afraid to say if we don't know something, we're afraid to say if we don't fully subscribe because the majority subscribes in it, um, we're afraid to say that we still need to do a lot more research about this thing that is a deep inquiry of ours that we want to place as a significant source of knowledge. We're afraid to say that we don't have enough references sometimes and are creating them as we go along. And so I think there's a humanity that sometimes is stripped from the establishing and sustaining of knowledge because really it comes from us um, and yet it becomes mechanical in the way that we deliver it package it disseminate it you know just even the concept of of rightness i think is a what feels like a very uh, western heritage that idea that you can't be a confused academic <laughs> you know who who is Definitely. learning and co-creating with the stu- with your students you know that you're uncovering along with your students that you're you're sharing in the research, you're sharing in the creation because you're supposed to be the one who's the holder of knowledge, who disseminates that knowledge to the ones who do not know knowledge and who are there to simply receive. And so something like that, which is actually really human relationships and human connections, is an incredibly transformative thing to do in an institution like that. And I really say that also because of my experience of it, you know, as I Started in academia, you know, with really no training as a teacher, as a lot of institutions have, where we become lecturers after we've uh, finished studying and constantly experiencing as a student and as a lecturer the constant resistance from power. And then being on the side of lecturer and seeing how, you know, students are sometimes gaslighted, they're dismissed, you know, ranks are pulled. You know, all those they're shamed and just seeing the way that power is manipulative, it puts students in their place, so to speak. It it really for me became quite evident how important it is to also model that you come in not with a full knowledge or full understanding of something and that you can co-learn and that you can co-create. Um, and that doesn't necessarily make you unable to fill the role of lecturer, right? Your experience allows you to guide an inquiry, to frame an inquiry, to to understand how to bolster that inquiry. It grants you the ability to do all of that, but you don't need to fully know in order to be able to, to have that capacity contribute to knowledge. And so I think as lecturers, you know, we we have to definitely reflect on our own egos, the egos that we come into in in institutions when we start out and the the egos that we inherit, (laughs) the egos that we we are told we must carry. Um, I think we have to reflect on that construct of the intellectual ego all the time. I don't think there's necessarily a very clear, solid answer and understanding, I think we're constantly negotiating what that means. And I think that that ego also is incredibly Western as an idea. And so we have to, you know, as, as women of color, have to reflect not only on the ego as a concept, but an ego that didn't necessarily even belong to us to begin with.
0: Thank you, Zelisa. Very, very profound. And I'm, I look forward to us getting back to our more... Uh, Comfortable space of, of discussion, <laughs> because much as we are trying to ignore this microphone and this recording, again we do we do step out of um, a space of comfort and confront confront the world, you know, with these very personal inquiries in a world that is not prepared sometimes to to handle um, these personal reflections, and and it is it is true that. Um, of course, and that's why I referenced the fact that you're working from a particular institution, mm-hmm. because we know that for for us to even enter as lecturers, as professors, into uh, more more rigid or more established or whatever uh, institutions, you have to fit into a particular. Mold, you know, be it the requirements that are made of you in your curriculum, the requirements that are made of you, the academic requirements that we know—it's they are very rigid. They follow uh, certain criteria. They value certain oh, things. Yeah. I am—I always say that I'm very welcoming of the fact that at least we are beginning to create our own platforms here in the continent and virtually where we could experiment and where we could bring in people that don't uh, fit into that mold, that don't need to have PhDs to teach, that, that these platforms are welcoming of this co-learning that you speak of, of this exposing of our the fact that we don't have the answers as lecturers, the fact that we are engaged in profound modes of inquiry. Uh, that do not require us to write academic papers in a particular form and format in order to to be able to legitimize our, our space within those platforms. So I think that in, to end the conversation for now, I know we will continue, but in this podcast is to say that the urgency of us having these platforms or creating these platforms where we could bring in all of these modes of operating that we believe, at least in our inquiry, that we believe are more productive, more constructive, more true to our place, more true to our context, more true to our struggles, more true to what we can and have achieved to our vision to our experimentation i will end it there thanking you profoundly for always being such an amazing interlocutor and for always provoking me into further inquiry so you know i i admire you deeply and profoundly and your work and as a friend so i'm looking forward to our next Skype conversation or our next personal chat. Thank
1: you. Thank you as well. <clears throat> I really appreciate always having you as a sounding board, <laughs> as a source of reflection, as an incredible source of wisdom. Yeah. I mean, I'm incredibly deeply grateful for your presence, not just in my life, but in the academies in our industry as well I think you're a force I always tell you that I really yeah hold so much admiration for you thank you so much for the opportunity